Hi, I'm Louise. And I'm John. And you're listening to the DCIF podcast, Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community. We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members. Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change. This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans. Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk, where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum. Fantastic. Let's get on with the show. Um, so hi, John. Hey, Louise. How are you? I'm well. It's It feels like a really busy day today, and I'm sorry if there's a bit of an echo on this. Um, we're sitting in a very big Aberdeen meeting room about to do a research launch for some new research that we have coming out with Corporate Advisor. So that's really exciting. Yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, but on to this week's episode. We have recorded an episode that I loved recording. It was so much fun talking to Mark Austin, who is head of the UK for Northern Trust's asset owner business. But Mark isn't just, he doesn't just work in the world of asset management. He also wears a pension scheme hat. He is the trustee chair of the Northern Trust UK pension scheme. Uh, So it was great talking to him, wasn't it, John? Yeah, it was. And, you know, he's coming towards the end of this series and that's in no way signifies his importance to our (laughs) series Um, but we thought it was actually useful to have him towards the end of the series because you know over the last six or seven episodes we've heard from specific asset managers about their individual asset classes and how they can be applied within the DC context but what we wanted to do was sort of wrap that all together and pose some of the questions that we've I suppose we've um, asked ourselves over the course of those uh, individual podcasts and put them to Mark to get his take on it, not from an asset manager's perspective or indeed a member of the DCIS perspective, but with his hat as the chair of a, of a pension scheme. So it's interesting to, to hear his feedback. And, you know, this episode is probably one of the longest ones we've done, but it could quite easily have been at least, at least another sort of 30 minutes long because there was lots of questions uh, that we put to Mark and lots more we would want to ask him as well. Yeah, definitely. We talked about some of my favourite subjects. We talked about the frustrations we all have around engagement Um, we talked about how difficult it can be to be a trustee chair Mark works for a financial services company with a fairly well-educated sort of financially literate group of members but he still has to make sure that his default fund works for everyone who works for his company and I, I don't think that's an easy thing to achieve really and and he also talked a bit about regulation and and how hard it is spending so much time meeting the regulatory agenda when of course there are loads of other things that you also want to do it's really hard to kind of get that balance right yeah but as i say it hopefully you'll enjoy this episode because there was lots of really interesting topics to be covered with mark and as i say we'll probably have a mark austin version two uh, in 2023 because there's so much more we could have chatted to mark about yeah, definitely. In fact, we should mention that we recorded this episode before the recent LDI crisis. Uh, otherwise, we definitely would have asked Mark about that. And I'm sure it's something we'll um, put him in um, podcast version two. I don't know if he'll agree to do it now that I've said that. <laughs> Putting him on the spot. Anyway, um, we will be quiet now and uh, hand over to Mark. So, Mark, thank you so much for being with us. It's a That's pleasure to have you. It feels like it's ages since I've seen you last. Uh, that's what the pandemic does to you, I suppose. And you are here today to talk to us a bit about being a trustee. And you are the chair of trustees for the Northern Trust UK Pension Scheme. Is that right? That's it, yep. So tell me how you became the chair of trustees of the pension scheme. 
The normal process for sort of becoming a chair of trustees is you sort of work your way up into it. There is an increasing use of independent chairs in the market, but we've evaluated our trust. Because we're a financial services company, every time we ask our EBC, do we need an independent trustee? They say no. So you're absolutely fine as you are. So it was a process really of becoming first a member nominated trustee. And then after having been a member nominated trustee for a while, the then chair was about to retire. So he must be doing something right because he was able to retire. (laughs) So the then chair was going to retire and I put my name up to become chair and was voted in and at that point changed to being a company nominated trustee. And I've been chair now for just about five years. Fantastic. And I imagine, even just judging by some of the conversations we've had on this podcast series, the world has changed so much, hasn't it, in the last few years. How has being a trustee changed over the last few years? Have you seen any big shifts, I guess, the governance code and things like that? Yeah, I think that's it. I think when I first started to be a trustee, we took a lot more, a lot more of the conversation was around members, member options, member outcomes, are we doing the right thing? Have we got the right default in place monitoring the managers? But I think the regulation has taken trusteeship in slightly the wrong direction in as much as a lot of the regulation has become much more prescriptive about what goes into things. So for instance, I was discussing the chair's statement with a fellow trustee and we're both completely convinced that despite having the trust, the regulator having been much more prescriptive about what's in it, no one ever reads it other than the trustee. And we find ourselves in meetings going through stuff to tick a box. It's like playing cricket and just wanting a dot ball all the time. You just need to make it go dead and not get out. And that, I think, for me, is probably the frustrating change that's happened to trusteeship over time, is that you do just spend so much of your time meeting the regulatory agenda and ensuring that you're complying. That said, on the flip side, with what's happened to the lifetime allowance and the like, it's become much, much more important that we're doing right by the membership. So we've spent a lot of time now trying to design and build the right products to get members the right outcome. Well, hang on, let's take a quick step back before we talk about default approach and and your investment approach. Can you tell us a bit about your scheme? So how big is it? How many members do you have, etc.? Okay, we've got about 2,800 members. We're probably about 50-50 deferreds and actives. It's a hybrid scheme, just over 300 million. The majority of the scheme is DC. And we have a small DB, which is thankfully fully funded and also just about 100% de-risked. We take a small amount of, we take a 10% allocation to a DGF. And that is then, I suppose, about 40% equity. So it's about a 4% equity risk in the remaining DB. But because we've got such a good sponsor covenant. We've got probably around about 70 members and they're very skewed to some high value members. We've taken the view the best thing to do is to continue to run it on a sort of self-sufficiency basis. And then when some of those bigger members either leave or have finally retired and demised, then we'll reevaluate what to do with them. But at the moment in time, it's the only thing is it does get in the way of some of the DC work because you've got to just follow that the DB piece. So every meeting has got a DB section in it. And I think it almost uh, feels like a change because before DB was the dominating factor and the DC was just a small component, but it sounds like it's completely shifted its head for your particular It's completely shifted on its head and and having no deficit issue to worry about and having no sponsor covenant issue to worry about, touch wood, it continues. That's really good. It does enable us to focus on the DC. And from a governance perspective, 
does it take up a lot of time thinking about the DB considerations or is it quite straightforward because it is so well-funded and the covenant is so strong? It's quite straightforward. We've got a single manager and the majority of the fund is as much as we can trying to match. The DGF is from the same manager as well. So from that respect, yes, we have to go through all the stuff like the trienials and be notified by the company and any changes and to the covenant, etc. It is very much not perfunctory, but it's very much a sort of procession, for want of a better phrase. On the governance side, so we have a single trustee. We do the investment matters at the full trustee board. But as governance has become such an important part of what happens, the new combined code, etc., we've just started a governance subcommittee. So that's the first subcommittee we've put in place. We did talk to the trustees at the time about should we put an investment committee in place? And they were all very keen because they see investments as being particularly around the design of the default and the like. They see that as being a very key part of the scheme. And so they wanted to hold that at the main trustee board. And we're quite unusual. We've got close to 20, maybe 22% self-selectors. Yeah, well, that makes sense, doesn't it, as a financial services? It can be frightening as a chair of trustees, I can (laughs) tell you. You must get some very long questions, I can imagine. Yes, you do periodically get stopped in the corridor by individuals who want to ask (laughs) you stuff and you generally just hear them out and refer it back up so as we can deal with it via the EBC. But I've had moments in the corridor where people of, say, mid-30s wandered up and they're completely allocated to emerging markets or completely allocated to property or something like that. And at that point, you think (laughs) self-selecting DC is just maybe not the right idea. I suppose it's good to have an engaged membership. Yes, and it that, is. I suppose it's a double-edged sword, isn't yeah. it, really? Because it's nice to have members engaged, but you want to make sure they're engaging on the right things. And I suppose that must be one of the challenges for trustees is how can you make sure that the end member has access to all the right information, particularly if you have such a high proportion that are going down the, the self-select route. Yeah, and it's a really important point, actually, John, because there's another challenge in there. And that is that, yes, we're a financial services company, but the members of the pension run from the CIO of the asset manager down through people like myself who are in pensions, but then there are people in the post room who are in the same thing. So you've got to create a proposition for that membership. You've got to create a proposition for the CIO to the head of the post room. And driving a best fit line through those two constituencies can be really difficult. I suppose that's a challenge with setting a default as well, isn't it? When you've got such a wide and varied group of employees is trying to find something that is, I suppose, has a universal appeal for everyone without necessarily alienating a particular cohort of your membership. You mentioned self-select a couple of times. I'm interested in what you've got to self-select. Is it a massive range of funds or is it a fairly narrow set of funds? No, it's a fairly narrow set of funds. We have our self-select is just the ability of members to access the individual funds that make up because our equity, active equity, has got four managers in it. So they can access those four funds separately. We've used a couple of annuity target funds. They can access those separately. And then all the other funds like the DGF and stuff like that are all available separate to them, including a passive DGF as well as an active one. Tell us a bit about your default fund. So the default fund is we've got a single default fund that we put people into and they can opt for a slightly higher return version of the default fund, but they have to opt up into that one. So the standard default fund starts de-risking about seven years to the target retirement age. We are currently aiming at 55 for members. We're having debates about that at the moment, about whether that's entirely appropriate right now to be aiming at 55, and that's probably a hangover from when the scheme was set up a fair while back. 
So it starts de-risking at about seven years to go. It's predominantly in the DGF, and then it de-risks down into a mixture of cash and some of the annuity target. But we've tried to design that so as it makes both... We've had to design it back to that whole challenge of the two constituencies. I mean, that's, if there's one theme will come out of this, and that is that you're trying to satisfy so many different constituencies, so many different people's approaches, you always end up coming down in the middle, and it almost feels as if it does neither. We do something right now, which we've designed to meet someone who goes annuity open market option, but also will meet someone who wants to go SIP or to and through or something like that. So it's designed to go between the two of them. So we do take risk off the table. We use the DGF for that, but we're leaving, because it's a DGF, there's still some risk off the table. That is designed to give equity-like return a much lower volatility, and it does do that. So I think that whole idea of trying to go down the middle all the time can be quite painful. And we did originally look at doing two defaults. But then if you're going to go down the route of doing two defaults, then you've got to start educating people as to what the difference in two defaults are. And you've got to pull that right back to the point at which people enter the plan. So if you enter the plan, you can self-select or you default because you're going to do annuity or default because you're going to go to and through. So then you're having to bring all that education back here to this point. It just felt to us that we would put ourselves in a position where it was going to become too difficult to actually get people to a position where they understood aged 25, the decision they were taking for age 55 plus, and therefore to make the right one along the way. So it's why we opted for a default that would aim at both. And in terms of the lifestyle itself, is it the same sort of fund that's used and then at sort of age I don't know, 48, something like that, that's when it starts to deviate in terms of the investment strategy? And is there suitable nudges in advance of that? There are nudges. We use one of the big platform providers to do the whole warm up. So at a point in there, we've just changed it. I can't remember what it is. At a point during their journey, they will get a call from the platform. The platform will talk them through their options at that point and tell them what's happening. And so our default fund is made up, as I said, of the cash fund, the DGF, and then a target annuity fund. And so it's just those mixes we change as we get down towards the target date. But I come back to the point I made earlier on that we're still aiming at 55. And is it appropriate now to be aiming at 55 to get someone to a point where they're either to and through or annuity? It's probably not. We should be pushing that back out now. I think that should be at least 60 or possibly even harmonised with NRA. That's really interesting, isn't it? Was the 55, did that change in response to freedom and choice? Yeah. We were very, 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 very early on in adopting DC. We've been DC for my entire life at the company, which is slightly frustrating, but there we go. (laughs) (laughs) And just thinking about the sort of engagement and making members aware, obviously trying to get people as engaged as possible is a big challenge for DC schemes more generally. I'm just wondering, how has that changed over, say, the last three or four years from your perspective as a trustee? Is it now something that is permanently on the agenda in terms of member comms, or is it something that you only deal with on an ad hoc basis? It is permanently on the agenda, and it's something that I personally feel quite strongly about, but it is very difficult. There are some stubborn, there's a non-engaged universe, and that you can do what you like to try and engage them. So what we try and do is communicate once a month on something, whether there's a communication that goes out because we've made a change or there's something that they need to take action on. And if there's not, we'll come up with something to communicate out. So as we've constantly got people getting a stream of emails from us, either suggesting that's a good time to go away and look at your expression of wish form, good time to go away and check 
New Year's resolution, go into the system today, make sure that you're still absolutely happy with what your selections are. If you're not doing AVCs, consider those, etc. So we try and make that happen. Engagement, we have managed to tiggle it up. Not much, but it does. it is going in the right direction. The best engagement we've ever had is when something's gone wrong. <laughs> so it's almost worth actually communicating on something having gone wrong just to get the engagement. And we've had it happen to us twice now and we were gated in a property fund. And on both occasions, when we were gated, we had to go out to the membership and we saw a threefold spike in usage of the online tool as a result of having got a negative email. That's why the headlines are also negative, Mark, as a journalist. Yeah. I can tell you it's what people click on, isn't it? And the bad news. <laughs> yeah. So depressing. unfortunately, that's the way to get the members Human engaged. <laughs> yes. Was that members checking that they weren't invested in the property fund or was it actually members who were in the property fund? I don't know, actually. That's a very good question. We don't have a huge number of people in the property fund, but right, the implications okay. of yeah. it were actually a pain because having gone through that process and people who've got the property fund in their mix, if they were then reaching retirement age or something, we're having to hold stuff up because right, we yeah. gated in the property fund. We still haven't finally got the last of the money out. And I suppose it goes into member education and things like that. So for those investors who are in the property fund, it might be difficult for you as a trustee to know this, but do you get a sense that the people who are in it were in it for the right reasons and therefore understood the potential implications for that asset class? Or for some of them, was it a genuine surprise and therefore you were getting stopped in the corridor and berated for having the wrong fund on the platform? So sadly, a lot of it was actually down to people didn't understand the fund properly. And we had a long debate when we were gated on the second time here about direct access versus some sort of either using a REIT or something like that. That was a really long debate amongst the trustee. And we had two or three people very strongly felt that direct access to property was the right way to go. But having had these two episodes where we were gated, Ultimately, the trustee, once we discussed it, came down to the, the idea that in the future we were going to use REITs or an indirect access as we'd got some form of liquidity there. That is a really interesting point. As chair of trustees, I imagine a big part of your job is trying to help people have those constructive conversations where you have to handle disagreement on what your investments should be. Say there's a trustee listening to this who might be in a similar kind of situation. Have you got any advice on how to manage those difficult conversations and disagreements? How do you approach it? The three things I'll say. The first one is it's how you put the trustee together. And I learned this through personal bitter experience. I used to run a corporate actions department and I had a whole load of people in it who were all the best of the best. And it was a bit like creating an ecosystem full of tigers. There were no (laughs) rabbits for them to eat. They just spent all their time eating each other. So I realized that you needed to create much more of a harmonious arrangement and create an ecosystem. So we've been very clear when we're putting the trustee together. And each time we have a new trustee coming on, we all interview the new trustees and we are very clear on the skill set that we're looking for, both that hard skill set, but also very clear on the soft skill set. If the individual coming in behaves in a slightly autocratic way, and so that that's a real no-no, and we will actually not select someone who we think is going to be too autocratic within the trustee, and we've been successful. So the first one is how you put it together. Second one is, as chair, you've got to hang back. So a lot of people will look to you as chair and think, okay, we'll, we'll see what the chair says and then we'll all fold in line or disagree with it. You've got to hang back. And so once they get to know that you are not going to give them your opinion or decision until they've all expressed their opinion and decision and you as chair have to just keep going around. So 
what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? So that's the second thing is being very clear about your role as chair and how you chair. And the third one is, is if you do get something sticky coming up and you know it's going to be sticky and you generally know who is going to be the person who's going to have the most issue with it, you can reach out to them separately and maybe pre-run some of the conversation. So as when you get to the trustee meeting, you've got a lot of their views already aired with you and it's a lot easier then to achieve consensus. That's really useful. Thanks, Mark. I think I'm going to take some of those tips away into my own sharing, <laughs> particularly hanging back. I think it's so easy as chair to jump in and fill a silence when actually it's better to hang back a bit and, and let other people hash out a bit first. Yeah, You can't solve the, everyone's problem. The other instant deselection for us and anyone who we're interviewing for trustee, they have to say, we are here to look after the members' interests in some way, shape or form during the interview then they're fine. If they don't mention the members ever in the interview, they don't get through. And when you're selecting new trustees, for example, are independent trustees ever considered at all or given the skill set that you have within Northern Trust, are you very confident that you could fill a role if one became vacant? When we've been going through the value for member conversations that now you have to go through and evaluate, we now are asking alongside that, is the trustee body fit for purpose. So we ask it of our EBC and we ask it of our law firm. You've dealt with us. You've seen how we operate. You know what our skill sets are. You know what our knowledge level is. Do we need or should we consider bringing an independent in? And they've consistently each year told us no. But we do actually ask that question, not of ourselves. We ask it of our advisors because you do have vested interests and some people like being a trustee and it appearing on their CV. So when you get to the value for member conversation or the independent chair conversation, or independent member conversation, you have to try and put those to one side. It sounds as though you have like the opposite problem to most trustee boards in the sense that you have a lot of people who want to be trustees. Is that right? Yeah, it is. So the last selection process we ran, we had 18 people put their hand up out of a constituency of about 600. And then there were about a further eight who expressed interest. And I spoke to most of them sort of ahead of time. And a couple of them I knew had got particularly big jobs. And I'm very clear that if you're going to be a trustee, that's what you turn up to first and foremost. So I did sort of explain to them that that it might not be the entirely the right job for them. And a couple of people who had conflicts as well that were a bit more glaring. Why do you think so many people want to be trustees in your organisation? Is it because of the financial services background? People feel like they know what they're talking about. But I imagine other companies might be interested in, you know, there is all this interest. What makes you different? I think it's the financial services, financial services piece. That's a job for us as a selection board is to winkle out those people who've decided that trustee would look good on their CV or trustee would look good when they were going to knock on someone's door trying to sell them asset management. You're not in it for the right reasons. I think we just are particularly lucky. I've done three exercises now and we've always been massively oversubscribed. That's amazing. And what was the demographic like of the people who are applying? Was it a a pretty equal split across all sort of age cohorts? Or did you find that it was people perhaps coming towards the end of their career and therefore there was a vested interest in trying to understand more about pensions? (laughs) You do get that. That does happen. But we set out two years ago with a D&I approach. And because you look at the average trustee, they look like me, Some of them wear cardigans, some of them wear jumpers, but they look like me in terms of age and where they sit. So we did set out in all the selection processes with our roster of what we wanted soft skills, 
what we wanted, hard skills, and we also had an eye to the demographic. So we last two trustees we brought on, we brought on someone under the age of 30 and from Indian subcontinent background as well. And we brought on the other person is sort of slightly younger in their 40s, but they are a performance measurement specialist. But we are studiously trying to make sure that the trustee balances out. So we are currently, we've got of the seven, sorry, six now, because one's just resigned, the six members, we've got two women. We're trying to get to parity over time. Awesome. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned you brought in someone from a performance measurement background, because one of the things we wanted to ask you about was what success looks like for you from an investment perspective. It's a really difficult question to actually come up with that in proper terms, because if you ask a member, they'll say, well, I can retire at 45. <laughs> you do a bang up job. We get to the LTA in no time at all and et cetera, et cetera. But then we have to explain that that is in terms of the risk and the yeah. volatility. So when we were doing the value for member assessment recently with the EBC, we actually pushed back on them because they rated us as a three in terms of our performance. But they took the performance on its own and there was one or two funds were average. So pretty reasonable performance, one or two funds were average. So we pushed back and said, well, is that really a three, three out of three for this? Because there's a couple of average funds in there. It's not stellar. We're not getting people to LTA by age 45. So should we do that? And we should be explaining to people that what you are getting is performance with a certain level of volatility, because volatility or lack of it is incredibly important, particularly as you start to get towards the 50, 55, because you run the risk of fishtailing at that point. We wanted that assessment to, to look at success in terms of achieving a reasonable rate of return with a much lower volatility. So success for us is that. And just going on that, does success look different for different cohorts? So if you are in that sort of the latter stages of your sort of pension savings journey, then perhaps success for you is very little volatility. Whereas if you're newly joining the scheme, then success might actually be no holds barred, fantastic growth. Maybe it goes back to the point you made at the outset, which is trying to find something that's consistent for all members. But I just wonder whether you do ever think about success for different cohorts of the membership. So we do within the default. So because the default then runs with the DGF for the majority of its life and then tails off when you get towards that point. So it is to an extent. We don't differentiate a huge amount on it. It's probably something that's worth a consideration. But then unfortunately, and this is not by way of an apology for this, but then unfortunately you sort of get yourself back into the situation where you're either making your default incredibly complicated or different versions of it incredibly complicated. You don't know what people's other arrangements are. You're defining a fund or defining a pathway for someone with no real understanding of what their provisions are. So it's not necessarily appropriate to make stuff too complicated and then you get straight back into that communication issue so if you're having to communicate several versions of the default which one would fit you you then getting yourself into difficulties in terms of people making the wrong decisions all the time so then from your perspective is it about making tools available so that members can look at their pension scheme investing holistically so they can understand what else they've got and what their overall pensions investment looks yeah, like. Yes, it is. I mean, we do provide a modeler. It doesn't get an enormous amount of use. I mean, if I had one thing that I think in my entire time as a trustee, I always find relentlessly disappointing, and that is the level of member engagement. We, I think, are probably better than most 
but just the level of engagement by the public in something that in absolute terms is probably the second, possibly even the first most important financial purchase they're ever going to make. And they'll spend so much time looking at houses and getting the right mortgage and the rest of it, and they'll spend no time looking at their pension. And do you think there is a silver bullet to get the members more engaged? Or is it just that's going to be a challenge that if we're chatting to you in five years' time about this very topic, you'll still say that member engagement is a real challenge for you? It'll be the same. We're hamstrung to a certain extent by a lot of what you can do with members. So something that we will be exploring towards the end of this year is the extent to which we can get advice for members. The extent to which, and I've sounded the company out on this about whether they make a one-off payment per member after a certain number of years within the business as part of the overall benefits package. So they'll give you £500 worth of IFA, which I think would go a long way to getting individuals at least properly engaged with not just their savings, but their whole financial well-being. But it's something I feel very strongly about, but we try as much as we can. We have pension days, we put people in the canteen, we put stuff all over the benefits exchange. You go in and you get your cycle to work and everything else. It's all in there, but the engagement is not where it should be. And that's an industry thing. Oh, totally. I wonder if dashboards might end up helping the member a bit, especially when the really long-term dashboard where you get all your financial information in one place. I can imagine that would be quite helpful because I'm sure other people are like me and I work in this world where I know I've got a pension and I probably ought to look at it and do something you know, from my first employer and it's just sitting there and it's a hassle and they've got my old address and they can't change my maiden name to my married name. It's also very complicated. You've got to do everything by post still. So maybe this is in fact... A bit of me and a bit of them. As the <laughs> leader of the DCIF, should you be omitting this? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the point, isn't it? That is absolutely the point. And that is and if someone me. like you, yeah. who is financially literate, financially aware, your daytime job is pensions, and you've left a pension like that without paying attention to it, not even changed your address no. or your maiden name. It's because it's a hassle. They want you to send in your marriage certificate, like the original version, and that's up in the loft somewhere. Do so, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just complicated. And I have another pension now because I'm self-employed, and I can log in on my smartphone and look at it. And for me, that is an absolute game changer. I think technology is definitely going to help, particularly with my generation and younger people who are used to just doing everything on their phone. And then suddenly you get a case of you have to phone a helpline and the computer says no, and you just get immediately quite put off doing anything. <laughs> yeah, no, and I fully understand. And also you get now as well, there is so much, so many hurdles through the verifying who you are thing. You just exactly. lose, lose the will to live. Yeah. <laughs> to your point, I think dashboard will help, but I think it's problem is going to be that people will know about this stuff so now they've got the dashboard but if the bottom line figure is less than fifty thousand pounds no one's going to give them any help with it if you go into an ifa with that an ifa is going to want whatever they'll want two three four hundred pounds even just to go over it and to actually come up with any advice probably a grand and no people are going to balk at spending that if they've got a 50 grand part I think the whole notion of paying for financial advice is quite an alien concept because particularly for the masses, because it's only something that's really been used by, I don't want to say the affluent, but people who've got bigger pots of money across their entire savings pot. And just going back to the point about potentially making a sum of money available for financial advice for the members, would that be at a particular life event or something they could get every couple of years? Have you sort of thought about how that might look in practice? No, I haven't is the answer. And the only thing I, when I was talking to the company about it, it said, well, to avoid someone starting 
accessing the free advice money and then leaving four weeks later. So we'd say it would kick in as a benefit, say, five years in. It might be appropriate that it kicks in at a benefit at, say, age 30. I don't know. But someone who would sit down and say, they would say in front of you and said, okay, so what is your pension provision? And you'd have to go back through those ones that you've not picked up from previous employers and get stuff into one place. Dashboard might help with that. But actually getting the advisor to come in and making it a benefit to the individual through the company, I think will get us a lot more engagement. Almost to make a conscious decision not to do anything with your investments rather than it actually just being an unconscious decision because of apathy or concern about the hoops you need to get through. Exactly, yeah. yeah, And one of the things that we do go through, which is obviously just quite sad events, we go through either death in service or death in deferment events, where we have to make a judgment call on making sure that things are going in the right place and that they're being dealt with accordingly. The number of those where the individual has not filled out the expression of wish form is just, it's shocking. So it's probably... 25, 30% of people just do not fill out the expression of wish for. It is a single A4 sheet and it has three things you have to fill in and they don't do it. And so when we get to the point where we're sadly going through that situation, if someone can't get engaged on something as important as that, I just worry for where we can get with engagement with pensions. Yeah. And I think that's a, it's a challenge full stop because we get a monthly newsletter from the pensions team or the benefits team and every so often there's a note saying please make sure your expression of wish form is up to date so i'm not quite sure over and above that what employers can actually do to try and get people to actually fill this piece of paper in because as you say it's a fundamentally important piece short of actually standing over someone at their desk and getting them to fill it out i'm not quite sure what else you can do i agree with you but i think it's symptomatic of this engagement or this lack of engagement that you just can't work out how to overcome it And do you think it's a size of pot thing? Is there a magic number at which, I think you mentioned 50 grand, it might have been a number you plucked out there, but if, say, a member's pot got to twice the salary or a multiple of the salary, do you think something will psychologically switch in their brain where they say, no, I need to actually pay more attention because it's actually a pretty decent sum of money? Or it's not as straightforward as that and it's just down to the individual. I don't know themselves. the answer to right. that, John. And I'll be honest with you, having just listened to that, something I'm going to go back and ask the EBC if when they're doing the administration, whether they can do that analysis. Because we know, because we've got their email address, we know who's on the, the system, site. Yeah. So if we can then tally that back to at least cohorts of yeah. these are people on it who are yeah, it's 50, less than it, yeah. people on it are 50 to 100. Might be interesting to do. I'm sure I read somewhere that that's, there's a psychological, there's a number and it's when it's the same number as your salary, you might become more engaged. Whether that's true or not, I'm not quite sure. But it's interesting to try and figure out what the members' trigger points would be to be more interested Maybe in their pension. Maybe this could be a bit of DCIF research. Could be, yeah. yeah. What is I mean, the magic number? What's the magic yeah, number? I don't know. Because okay. technology is not a problem anymore. You mentioned you can look at your pension valuation on your smartphone nowadays. And for me, that so, is So there must be something psychologically that means people aren't that engaged. Because going back to your point, it's DC provision is largely going to be the biggest source of retirement income for people from now on. It's probably been for the last 10, 15 years or so. So it seems strange that there's not this increase in engagement in, in it. And I suppose that's the challenge for trustees and providers is trying to figure out how you can somehow get people more engaged. It won't be an overnight thing, I don't it's think. It's not going to be overnight at all. I hate to bang on about smartphones, but I really think for people, I'm in my mid-30s, people mid-30s and younger it's going to be and maybe a bit older than that too people who anyone who likes their smartphone or their ipad it's going to be about having an app having push notifications have you done your expression of wish form if you haven't click here on your phone 
sorry, podcast listeners, I'm jabbing an imaginary phone and you literally press three buttons and click complete and you're done. I really think that will make a big difference, but I don't know if technology's quite there yet. I think it has to be, doesn't it? But on that engagement, and this sort of leads us on to a, sort of another topic and something we've been speaking to all the various people we've been interviewing is ESG, sustainability, climate change. Do you think that might be sort of the silver bullet that might get members more engaged? When you're getting stopped in the corridor, are people saying, tell us, Mark, are you investing in firms that are digging up the Arctic? Are you getting those sorts of questions from members? We are, we are getting those sort of questions. And I probably should come back and talk to you again in about six to eight months time because we're about to survey our membership. And we'd shied away from surveying the membership because we were worried about the construction of the questions and ending up with the wrong answer. And by the wrong answer, I mean ending up with something that said, we absolutely just come off watching Blue Planet and seen the turtle with the straw in its nose. And now they just absolutely want to go full ESG. In order to do that, there are considerations about that. There is a cost associated with redoing all the funds. If we redo all those funds, if a member is six months away from retiring, is it right then to just go and restructure all the funds on them and have them incur that cost six months before they retire, etc.? So we are now going to survey the membership around ESG. Up until this point, we've relied on the EBC's evaluation of the managers as a basic approach. I do have some sympathy with the managers. A lot of them we've hired three, four, five, six years ago. And we hired them for certain roles within certain funds. So for instance, we've got a smart GARP manager. And I wrote to them as chair three years ago now and said, because they were the lowest ranked in terms of our managers in the ESG scoring. And I wrote to them and said, look, we are going to be paying attention to this increasingly in the future. If your mandate should come up for review, we would be expecting to see much better scores around ESG because we will be deselecting people on that basis. But then I got a lot of sympathy with them because we hired them six years ago for a smart GARP mandate. We didn't hire them for ESG and we didn't evaluate their system for ESG at the time. So in answer to your question, yes, we are making ESG changes to it, but we are going to survey the membership and see if they want some express self-select standalone option around ESG. One thing that's come up time and time again in the conversations that we've had so far is around from the asset management side, how difficult it is to give data in a consistent way to trustee boards. And I'm really interested to hear from your side of the fence, from your trustee side of the fence. And also, of course, you see both sides of it, don't you, in your day job at Northern Trust. How is that process evolving and how straightforward is it for you to use the data that you're given by asset managers at the moment? So I'll be absolutely honest with you, in the trustee role, we're relying on the EBC for that at the moment. Yes, we discuss what we're doing. Yes, we've put ESG versions of the fund in when we are changing funds for other reasons. We've changed the DGF to an ESG bent DGF, which is the largest investment that the fund has because it's in the, it's the majority of the default fund and it's also quite a popular self-select. So we're going down that route. However, we're not getting granular level manager data at the moment around the portfolios. So we're just not using that. The other side of it, a lot of what we're seeing, particularly on DB world, is people are again, and it's back to that thing of complying. It's back to, I can't think of a better analogy than the cricketing term of you just want a dot ball. You're not out there to make a difference. You're out there not to get out. And so that's what a lot of it is. So they want to comply. And that seems to be their first and foremost request around this. Coming back to us on the DC side, 
like I say, we're just not collecting that data at the moment. We will do, I think, in the future, but it's going to have to be available to us and processed by the EBC to be in a consistent format. And just at this moment in time, I figure that having seen a lot of what's coming out, there's so many different people doing things in different ways. It's so difficult when you get into fixed income instruments. It's even more difficult when you get into things like property and alts. Well, we should probably wrap up pretty soon, Mark. We've kept you talking for ages. It's so interesting hearing about the other side of the fence, I suppose. What should we ask you to finish? I mean, one thing I'd love to hear about is what's on your to-do list at the moment. What are you thinking about as we, well, we're recording this in September. What's on your list for the next year to two years, perhaps? So what we do with the DB element, I would love to get rid of the DB element just because it takes up time and a refocus on the DC. We've restructured the way that the trustee works around post-pandemic. We're having more frequent meetings and I'm actually tempted to try and make those meetings more frequent again. So we went from quarterly to twice a month, sorry, every... Bi-monthly. Yeah, thank you. Everyone gets, yeah, it's (laughs) difficult. (laughs) So I would quite like to actually get around to probably having those meetings on a monthly basis. I'm very keen on training. So I've got a lot of the trustees I'm encouraging to go out and spend time training. So one going tomorrow to a day-long DC workshop and something very keen around that training. I think the biggest thing on my mind right now is the point at which the value for member kicks in and what we do. Where I'm sat right now, I know some of the big master trusts. I know what they've got in the way of investments. I know how sophisticated they can be. And I'm sat there as chair, and it's a conversation we've had with all the trustees. It feels like there will come a time when we will give in and adopt a master trust for the solution. And I think that's probably the thing for the sort of one to two years out is what point will that happen and should we get ourselves tidied up for it? So hence back to the DB. If we can get rid of the DB, then DC is then much cleaner and then we can look at that. So I think that's the biggest thing on our collective trustee mind and on mine. Fantastic. Well, Mark, thank you so much. I could talk for hours, but... We should probably let you go. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Oh, you're more than welcome. So and maybe, some stuff was of interest. Yeah, maybe come back for part two <laughs> one yeah. of these days in season two. <laughs> You've been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to this show on your favourite podcasting platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World, New Opportunities.